Our guest today is Mark Emmert, president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA. This is the Harvard EdCast. Being a president for you is nothing new, right? You come from a unique position of being a college president and transitioning over to the president of the NCAA. How was that as a, as a role change? Well, pretty dramatic. Uh, I loved uh, I loved my life on campus. I'm I'm uh, uh, every parent's nightmare. I went to college at 18 and never left for 40 years, and so I I was on campus as a student or a graduate student or a professor or a, a university leader, and finally got to be the head of a couple of great universities. Uh, and and so my life was very much caught up in all the tradition of of uh, American higher education. When I took this position, it, it um, first of all, was a bit of a shock to to go to a building that didn't have students and professors in it for the first time in all those years. Uh, but I've en enjoyed it immensely, and and part of that is because uh, I now know the leverage and and impact that you can have on education policy uh, and changing the lives of uh, sometimes a half a million students by by um, putting in things that improve the lives of our student athletes. Yeah, I think, you know, our listeners uh, probably know a little bit about, you know, college sports and the sort of broad stroke ideas, but the specifics of what the NCAA does on a sort of day-to-day -day basis, a little bit about that policy and a little bit about what you've done in your time there since, uh, I think you started in 2010. I did, yeah, seven years now. Uh, well, f there's a lot of misperception of what the NCAA is or isn't, and, you know, people throw around the term, the NCAA does this, the NCAA does that, and uh, I encourage them to just simply uh, uh, substitute for the NCA. The universities of America decided this. The universities of America decided that. And, and the reason for that is that the NCA is an organizational structure within which uh, universities and colleges that, that are members, 1,100 of them, uh, make their decisions together. So all the rules, all the policies, all the practices that go on, those are decisions that are made by the schools themselves through this representative system. It, it, think more about the, the United Nations, if you will, than the NFL. Uh, and then we run 90 national championships, and so we're responsible for putting on all those events. And, and then, of course, uh, uh, we're responsible for, because the members' schools ask us to, to, to enforce those rules where, where need be. So um, the, the other piece that people miss about it is they, they miss the size and scale of it. There's now 1,100 schools that are members of the NCAA. Uh, there's nearly 19, a little over, actually, 19,000 different teams. 55,000 students participate in our championships, and there's about 475,000 students that, that play in NCAA games uh, every year. So it's a very big, far-flung enterprise um, that, that uh, uh, is governed by a representative model of university presidents and athletic directors and faculty members and, and the students themselves. So as part of that sort of brand awareness and there's some sort of misunderstanding around it, you're obviously probably getting a lot of questions as it relates to anything related to anything uh, college athletic scandal. They apply that to NCAA. <laughs> of course, is that, is of that wrong to do that? Or wh where should those questions be directed uh, around sneaker deals, around recruiting violations, things like that? Yeah, no, they absolutely should be uh, directed toward the NCAA as long as uh, people know that the NCAA is, in fact, this this collective decision-making body of the schools. So, if you see a, 
uh, a school that gets in trouble and, and there's a penalty passed out to it that says the NCA just did, did something to a school, just recognize that that was a, uh, a body, a committee of committee called the Committee on Infractions. It's made up of people that represent a cross-section of the country, not just of higher ed. It, it's not uh, any one person sitting in a room making a decision. Uh, it's quite, quite different than that. You know, on the other hand, the NCAA, my job uh, in the national office, uh, is to provide leadership on the key issues that uh, reform and improve on the experiences for those 475 student-athletes. We, I spend the majority of my time trying to keep people focused on the, the great opportunities that college sports provide students, and, and in particular, three things about that, and that's, first of all, that this is, in fact, about uh, sport connected to athletics. You know, we're in the human development business, not the talent development business. Uh, and this is about young men and women getting their educations and launching their lives. Uh, and that's exactly what 98% of them do. Second thing is about keeping people focused on the health and well-being of, of students that play these games. Both physically and mentally, we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can and everything we know how to do to, to have them participate in games in the safest and, uh, and, and healthiest fashion. And then finally, it's, it's also about, uh, about fairness, making sure that the games uh, are conducted in a way that's fair for everybody, but also making sure that the relationship between the school and the student is a fair one in, in both directions, that school makes a commitment to, to a young person to come play uh, on their teams, that they're they, the school, are delivering on their commitments, and that the students are being held to the right standards academically and behaviorally as well. And, and, and so that's what the, the association and I try to stay focused on is, uh, making sure it's about academic opportunity, making sure it's about their health and well-being, and making sure it's about fairness. And I know health has been a huge part of uh, your time there at the NCAA. I, I have a friend who was finding out that I was talking to you today, and he said, oh, make sure to ask, this is a perennial question, about just athletes being paid. You know, at the sort of, at the high level where certain college and, and uh, college basketball, college football, the schools make so much money, all sorts of people are making sneaker deals and whatnot, but the athletes as amateurs don't get paid. Where do you usually find yourself uh, answering that question and or affecting policy when these big questions do come up as they do each year? Yeah, it's a, it's a question that's been asked actually for the 110 years the NCAA has been around and is, is you know, what, what's amateurism and, and why is that so important and why don't you just go ahead and pay athletes and you know the the reality is it's it's an important philosophical question that always needs to be addressed and people need to think about holistically because it's thrown out there as the catch-all solution to every <laughs> every problem in in sports in general uh, the university leaders in America across the board college and university leaders uh, have consistently expressed that they don't want to have student athletes be employees of the university especially you know, there's even been those who have said, well, they should be unionized employees. And, you know, that model just frankly doesn't make any sense at all. If you, if you bring somebody to your campus as a, as a student and they're interested in being a student, uh, and then you decide, uh, as, as uh, um, some people have suggested, you just throw that model away and, and now you just go hire somebody for $100,000 or whatever, you know, pick a number. Uh, that's a com those are two completely different models. Uh, you know, if somebody's going to be an employee that's a football player, why in the world would you want him to be a student? <laughs> you know, calculus gets in the way of playing football. The NFL doesn't have anybody take calculus classes. 
Uh, if you're hiring them for $100,000, uh, why in the world would you hire an 18-year-old? Why wouldn't you hire a 24-year-old or somebody that just got cut from the NFL or something? Why, if this is about hiring a football player, um, it, it, when when the football player turns 26 or 28 or even 30, uh, why would you say they have to leave the campus? Indeed, under under employment law, you probably couldn't because it'd be age discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, it, it it's a completely fundamentally different notion that a university is going to hire an employee to play football or basketball for them versus a young man or a young woman coming to a campus to play a game as part of that school and the university then is providing them with everything they could possibly need to advance their their academic success uh, something that is obviously enormously valuable um, and and here at harvard you don't offer scholarships for athletes but across the country now it's 2.7 billion dollars worth of financial aid that's provided directly to student athletes um, uh, at, at schools across the board. So it's, it's a huge part of students getting an education. Uh, nobody in, in higher education leadership positions has advocated that they be converted to employees. Uh, I, I and everyone else is deeply committed to making sure that they get everything they could possibly need uh, financially that's tethered to their educational experience. Yeah, I think it's interesting that a lot of people associate the NCAA with their time on college campus, their time as a student, but the NCAA really does have this commitment after they're done. A little bit about how you kind of convene this student-athlete population even after they graduate. Yeah, well, first of all, there's there's uh, uh, many, many schools, the, the vast majority of Division One. Uh, schools that that uh, continue their relationship with the student athletes even if they don't finish their degree it's very common now and there's been um, maybe 10 15,000 that have done this in the past handful of years students coming back after their eligibility is done coming back and finishing their degrees and the schools honoring their scholarship commitments even ones that have gone off to play uh, professional sport even though that's you know one or two percent schools still say yeah but come back and finish up your degree we want you to be a graduate the other thing is that we have a number of, of, of ways that we reach out to student athletes uh, to help them professionally with their careers. We have a program called Life After the Game that reaches out to students and connects them and um, helps them start their professional careers. We also run a bunch of uh, different um, uh, internship models because there's lots and lots of young people now that want to get into um, uh, athletics either at the collegiate level or elsewhere. Uh, is as uh, administrators and even coaches so we're constantly trying to develop and support them so that they have a really good chance to be successful in whatever career they choose last couple of questions and again thanks for taking time to have these conversations on campus today at harvard it, it's really great having you here um you know basketball and football and some of the sort of division one TV sports get a lot of attention. And I'm curious, you know, you have this opportunity now to, to speak to educators and parents today. What is it that we're missing in the broader conversation about the NCAA as it relates to other sports and, and maybe other divisions that need the attention but doesn't get the attention because it's maybe not the sexy headlines or involving scandal or, or big money or, or fame or celebrity? Well, first of all, most people know college sports by what they see on television uh, during the Saturdays of football season in the fall or uh, March Madness during the basketball tournament. And, and if that's what you're watching, those football teams and those handful of, of college teams, that, that constitutes about 3% of the total participation in NCAA sports. So that means you're missing 97% of what goes on or virtually all of it. Uh, you're right. It's those high-profile high, power, high profile sports 
that, that people are most uh, attentive to for obvious reasons. They're fun, they're exciting, they're dynamic. Uh, but uh, the, the uh, so-called Olympic sports, uh, divisions two and three, as well as division one, uh, a lot of a lot of athletic events that don't ever get televised are every bit as competitive and every bit as compelling for people to watch and participate in, uh, and, and those student athletes are having the experience of their lives. But whether it's at the, that very high level in football or basketball or anywhere else uh, across the um, the sports spectrum, uh, the student athletes are gaining things by participation in sport that they simply can't get in any other venue. I, I was meeting this afternoon with a group of, of athletes here at, at Harvard and chatting with them about you know their experience as a student and an athlete here and what they've learned and haven't learned. And, and, and they all were talking about their, their ability to be resilient, their ability to handle all kinds of time pressures their abilities to be competitors, their ability to be great teammates, and, and all of those things that they have picked up, not just from classroom experience, but you know, from, from playing games. It's a, it's a classroom that's, that's very, very unique, the playing field. You can learn things there more readily than you can in, in any other venue, and uh, that's what we want all of our, our NCAA students to take away from this. And I think leadership development is really at the key there. I know people who, they, they don't really care what you studied and they don't care where you went to school, but if you played or were a captain of a, of a Division One, Two, or Three athletic team, you are a leader and you've learned how to be a teammate. And I think that's really critical too. Uh, last question. This is a sort of fun grab back. You've been president for now seven years. Was there one moment as president of the NCAA where you were most excited as a fan as a fan to be <laughs> at an event, as a fan to see something. And this could be Division Three fencing, oh, or yeah, this yeah. could be obviously CBS March Madness. <laughs> well, I, you know, I am, I, am, I am a big fan of lots and lots of sports. You know, I love, I love our men's basketball tournament, of course, and we've had some incredible moments there. I love, I love women's volleyball. I think it's one of the most exciting dynamic games out there now. And uh, softball is fun. It's become so exciting. Uh, our baseball championships are great. I, I think if I had to pick one moment, it was, it was the Villanova North Carolina basketball game where North Carolina hits this spectacular shot to seemingly win a game, only to lose three seconds later on an even more extraordinary shot. You had within within thirty seconds uh, moment of time the uh, the agony and the ecstasy of sport all bundle up right there and it was just one of those magical sporting events now i can guarantee you that if michael jordan is listening to this podcast that was not his favorite moment <laughs> it wasn't i walked out of the building with him he was he was a hurting unit <laughs> poor guy he'll survive okay we're thanks fine. so much for being on the edcast today thank you this has been the harvard edcast a production of the harvard graduate school of education i'm your host matt weber thank you kindly for listening